Welcome to the Crime Jar Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Crime Jar Podcast. This is your host, Alma Noir. Thank you for listening. Before I begin, keep in mind that listener discretion is strongly advised as this podcast contains graphic descriptions of gruesome crimes, adult language, and material that may be upsetting to some. All cases have been investigated using public content and all links are available in the episode's show notes. Today in the Crime Jar, I bring you episode five, The Katana Crime. As an additional warning, please note that this case contains a child victim and mentions of suicide. So please keep this in mind. In the last week of March 2000, nine-year-old Maria Mercedes, a beautiful blonde girl with Down syndrome, told her mom that she had had a nightmare. She had dreamt that her big brother Jose ended their life and hers with a big knife. Her mother, knowing how much Jose loved his sister, calmed her down, told her it was just a bad dream and nothing was going to happen. Then, Mercedes, the mother, casually mentioned it to Jose during breakfast. He was shocked, because he had not written any of his ideas down. It was all being planned in his mind. Although, not with a knife, the concept was the same. So how did his little sister know? Jose Rabadán Prado was born on the 26th of December, 1983, to Rafael Rabadán and Mercedes Prado. He was a normal child, albeit a bit of a loner. He lived with his family in Santiago el Mayor, Murcia, in the southeast of Spain. In 1999, 16-year-old Jose had escaped from home. He was doing bad in school and had dropped out. After sneaking out of the house and wandering to the next town over, He changed his mind and called his father, Rafael, who was worried sick, to pick him up. Jose says that although he was always terrified of his father, due to his strictness, this was the only time Rafael cried, thinking he had lost his son. Jose was annoyed with himself at having called his parents at all. There were no real problems at home, apart from the usual teenage drama we all go through at one point or another. Everyone in the neighborhood knew the family, and knew Jose was not a problematic child. Sure, he had recently started smoking, and yes, he spent way too many hours glued to the computer, but other than that, there were no issues. In fact, neighbors had seen him help his father clean his work truck and behave normally. During the next year, since he had dropped out of school, He was doing a welding course that would allow him to seek job opportunities in the future. His parents gave him everything he asked for and spoiled him rotten. Rafael, a truck driver, earned a good living for his family and paid for many of Jose's whims, just to keep him happy. A new expensive PC, a brand new PlayStation, internet connection, which which back then was not as cheap and readily available as it is nowadays. A gym membership, money to go out during weekends, a samurai sword, also known as a katana. Jose had it all. 
even a few things that Rafael was not aware of, since his mother Mercedes protected her firstborn fiercely. For two consecutive months, the phone bill had been more than 100,000 pesetas, which is 600 euros, due to Jose's recent internet addiction. There was no Wi-Fi back then. Odeim was the nickname chosen by Jose to play Final Fantasy XIII and surf the web. He chose this because it's the word miedo in Spanish, read backwards. Miedo means fear. It was by using this nickname that he met a girl online and started a friendship. A friendship that soon turned to more, at least for him. He started looking forward to their daily dates. At 6.30 and 10 each night, they logged on and chatted for hours. They started to get to know each other. Locked in his room with the brand new PC his father had bought him, he told her about his knowledge of martial arts, roleplay games, video games, Buddhist philosophy. He was trying to conquer her. He told her he knew how to perform satanic rituals and black magic, and even convinced her that he was able to light black candles just by concentrating and using his mind. In reality, a friend had lent him some satanic books and he had flipped through them, sort of interested. Jose was trying to impress Sonia and lied through his teeth. On Friday, the 31st of March, 2000, Jose Rabadan acted like he normally did, even though he had decided that tonight would be the night. He was going to wait until the sun came up and then he would execute the plan that had been in his mind for days, weeks even. In the afternoon, he went out with his friends, though he was back by 6.30 to chat with Sonia and other users. He had dinner alone in his room at 8, like he used to do, in front of his PC. He had a shower and connected again from half past 10 to 3 in the morning. It was only then that he ended up going to bed, fully dressed, and waited. Before getting into his bed, though, he had gone to his closet taken the 71 centimeter or 28 inch samurai sword from its sheath, which he draped over his chair, and placed the katana with him under the covers. Jose did not sleep. He waited and waited for the sun to come up and let in enough natural light for him to do what he wanted to do. At four in the morning, he was ready to take action. The house was silent, apart from the snoring noises he could hear in the room next door. He got up, katana in hand, and slowly moved towards his bedroom door. A noise startled him, perhaps something outside, or his father moving in his sleep, and it made him back off and return to his bed. He believed his father had woken up and experienced an anxiety attack, believing he had failed. Two hours later, he tried again. Nothing stopped him this time. Between 6 and 6.30 on the 1st of April 2000, Jose Rabadan got out of bed with his katana sword and went towards his parents' bedroom. Rafael, his 51-year-old father, was asleep on his side when Jose got in the room. Jose stood by his pillow and watched his father's back for a moment, right before he attacked. Jose lifted the katana with both hands and struck his head twice, 
making two parallel gaping wounds into the side of his face that reached his brain. Rafael put up his arms in a defensive mode, and a few of the fingers of his left hand were almost cut off by the sharp blade of the katana. When Rafael turned slightly, Jose dropped the blade another few times onto his father's neck, and then again into his chest, cutting into his trachea and lungs. In total, Rafael was struck twelve times on the head, and fifteen times on his thorax. Jose's father had been alone in the bedroom, so Jose walked out into the hall to look for the remaining family members. It was here that he stopped, between the death of one parent and the other, and hesitated, thinking that perhaps it was all a dream. He quickly shook it off and moved to his sister's bedroom. His mother, 54-year-old Mercedes, was sleeping in the same room as the little girl, but had woken up due to some kind of commotion. Unfortunately, she wasn't fast enough. She sat up in bed and waited for whatever demon was coming her way. Little did she know, she would see her own blood-soaked son walking through the door, holding a samurai sword dripping in blood. A samurai sword that his father had gifted Jose due to his interest in martial arts. Mercedes screamed out for her husband Rafael, who unfortunately could do nothing for her. Jose attacked his mother without hesitation, hitting her in the neck and head, then her arms and hands when she took a fetal position on the bed and tried to protect herself. Her hands were almost completely cut off. Due to the viciousness of the attack, the katana blade broke, a piece of it flying through the air. He attempted to continue using it, broken as it was, and found that it would not penetrate the skin any longer. By this time, Maria Mercedes, his sister, was crying and screaming on the bed, and Jose hit her head once, almost separating her cranium. She was now lying on the bed, and he hit her head and neck several more times. Her defensive position also caused her to have almost amputated hands. He went back to his room, grabbed a machete from his closet, and stabbed his sister repeatedly in the face and neck before continuing the attack on his mother's back. Mercedes, his mother, had 11 cuts on her head, 25 on her arms, and 12 on her chest. Maria Mercedes, his sister, had 15 cuts on her head and 5 on her chest. All wounds showed that the victims were alive when attacked and the cause of death for all of them was organ failure, since most of the affected organs were heart, lungs, and the neurological center in the case of his sister. Jose then filled the bathtub with water, picked up his sister's body and placed it inside the tub. He attempted to do the same with his father, whose bludgeoned face he had covered with a plastic bag to leave less of a blood trail as he dragged the body to the bathroom. Jose tried to pick the body up to place him inside the bathtub too, but found that Rafael was too heavy and he could not do it. This is why he left Mercedes, his mother, on the bed. There was no need to cover her with anything. His reasoning for leaving them inside the bathtub was that he needed time to run, and he hoped the water would help delay the smells of the decaying bodies which in turn would delay the neighbors calling the police. Sitting down for a few minutes, he realized there was blood everywhere, including his clothes. He decided to get changed, 
but left his bloodied shirt and underwear on to save time. He needed to leave the house. Looking around, he found 15,000 pesetas, which is 90 euros, or 100 USD, which he took, along with his cell phone. He left his house keys behind since he was never coming back. The day was truly just breaking and he started to make his way towards Murcia city center. He walked until he believed that his friend Sonia had woken up and he was far away from home. Using his phone, he called emergency services several times to let them know what he had done. On the first call, he gave his address and told them there would be three bodies there. A while later, he called a second time telling them who he was and what he had done to his parents and sister. They didn't believe him and thought it was some kind of prank. Jose then made a third call and rang a friend to tell him what he had done. This friend ran to his house and when he got to Jose's door and got no answer, he called the police. After all of this, Jose called Sonia. He called her up 12 times that morning. They spoke so many times that he wasted the 6,000 pesetas he had on his prepaid card. When he reached the edge of the city, he stopped the calls and decided to hitchhike. He wanted to go to Alicante, which is a town about an hour away. People didn't mind helping someone as unassuming as this kid, and he got three rides until he finally got where he had wanted to go. They didn't know he was a fugitive, yet. It was midday by now, and he was impatient to get to Sonia. Now, he just needed to make his way to the train station to continue the rest of his journey to her. On his way, he saw a guy his age playing with a stick and asked him for directions to the station. Somehow, in this conversation, they became friends and Jose confessed he had killed someone. The boy, only known as OJS, comforted him and confessed his own parents were troublemakers and he was alone. They decided to continue the journey together and planned to do this on the next Monday. Meanwhile, the police had finally realized the seriousness of the several calls received and entered the second floor flat through the balcony with help of a fire truck. They immediately noticed the blood, which was everywhere. The bodies were located soon after, on the same day of the murders, at five in the afternoon. After linking the calls Jose made to the emergency number, and the calls his friend made to the police. They had also received calls from the neighbors due to the fact that they had not seen anyone in or around the house all morning and afternoon and got no response when they called or rang the bell. After the judge allowed for the bodies to be moved to the forensic institute, the police started investigating and immediately took the samurai sword as proof, as well as many other weapons they found in the home. They started looking for the only missing member of the family, José Rabadán, immediately as a suspect in the murders of his parents and young sister. The police also took notice of the books found in the teenager's bedroom, most on satanic subjects, and they wondered if the murders could have been ritualistic in nature. On the boy's computer, they found conversations with a girl named Sonia and her phone number. They called Sonia's mother to alert her of the possible danger and to try and get the girl's collaboration. They were correct in their belief that Jose would get in touch with Sonia. In fact, he had sold a cell phone and him and his new friend had begged in front of a church to get money so he could keep talking to her. 
Right before they were leaving to the train station, OJS and Jose went down to a shack and lit a fire, where Jose threw his bloody shirt in. Before they could board the train, they were arrested just as they were about to escape to Barcelona. They interrogated him for hours and even put him face to face with OJS, who was let go immediately after this as he had nothing to do with the crime. When police asked Jose why he had done this, he said he wanted to be alone and not to be found by his parents. Since the time he walked away from home the year before, he had caved and called his parents. He didn't want this to happen again. He said he had imagined his life without his family and believed the idea to be positive, both for him and his family. For him, because his life would change. And for his family, because it would end the anguish of the daily work struggles, family disputes, and his sister's suffering. They asked him why he had killed his sister, and he simply asked them another question. Quote, what would she do all alone in the world? I killed her so she wouldn't suffer. Unquote. He wanted to be alone in this world, live a new life, have the freedom to travel to Barcelona to meet Sonia, his online crush. He confessed that he had told his friends jokingly of his plans so he would get used to the idea and be forced to do it. Jose was asked why he didn't just leave and he stated that his family would have always found him. He was reminded that he would be judged. His reply was that he only feared God's justice and when informed that he first would have to deal with Earth's justice, he asked how long he could get. He was questioned about his link to magic, Satanism, and the Final Fantasy VIII game, since it was believed that he had cut his hair this way to look like one of the characters. He claimed those were all lies, and he was not into any of that. The officers found his calmness and his good mood terrifying. Yet they couldn't say anything bad about him. They said it would have been a lot easier to handle him had he shown signs of being crazy or mentally ill. This wasn't the case, according to them. However, he was checked out in the time before his trial by several medical experts who confirmed that he suffered from idiopathic epileptic psychosis, making him have a temporary crisis in which he committed the triple homicide and which would need treatment and a follow-up. Another expert stated that he was in a disassociated state when he committed the crimes and that he would require treatment in the form of medication and regular visits with a psychologist. Other experts just claimed that he was a psychopath, a narcissist and a sadist. His trial was the first serious case to be judged with the new law for minors in Spain, which had only been approved a few months earlier. The purpose of this law was to re-educate rather than to simply punish, and the judge was quite flexible to change the sentence depending on the evolution of the minor. So technically, a sentence could be cut short without notice, or changed to be less harsh to reward and encourage positive behavior. The trial was a quick and controversial one. They focused on his mental health at the time of the murders declaring that Jose needed psychiatric treatment because of his sadistic personality. 
He was sentenced to 12 years in a re-educational therapeutic center, four years per murder. However, due to the new law, the maximum he was allowed to be given was eight years in a detention center plus two years probation. In 2005, Jose was on a court-approved excursion with his keepers when he managed to escape. Six interns, including Jose and three guardians, were allowed to visit Elche as part of a re-education program. There was no police involved in this outing. He had been on previous proved outings, despite having a cold personality. Since he showed impeccable behavior and never had a problem, they did not consider him to be problematic. However, this time, after making a phone call, he announced to his peers that he intended to escape. During the escape, he attempted to rob a woman and threatened to kill her, but failed when she ran away. He was found three hours later walking along the side of the A7 motorway towards Murcia and was arrested by police. This escape attempt could have added from nine months to one year to his sentence since he was now an adult. However, when brought to trial, nothing happened since during the original trial, he was a minor. Instead of time added, time was taking off his sentence. And on the 1st of January, 2008, after having served seven years, nine months and a day, he was a free man. For 10 years, he lived in anonymity, completely rehabilitated and living his life as a normal man. That is, until his name appeared on the TV again. But this time, it was for a voluntary reason. In 2018, Jose appeared in a documentary called I Was a Killer on Spanish TV. Today, Jose is a 38-year-old married man with a young child who works as a stockbroker Physically, he looks nothing like that skinny, odd boy with an empty look in his eyes. He works out, is covered in tattoos, has a buzz cut, and an intimidating presence. Of his many tattoos, three are crosses on his chest, two large ones and one smaller one, a tribute to the family he killed. He speaks of his family with love, although he says his father was so strict that Jose would pee himself when told off. Despite this, he says his parents were affectionate. When asked why he did it, he says, quote, it wasn't me, the sword came down on its own. I don't have a clear explanation, unquote. Talking about his sister is the only time during the documentary that he gets emotional. He loved her the most, but didn't understand why she had Down syndrome and he believed this to be some sort of punishment from God. He still can't explain the premonitory dream she had, because remember, Jose's katana sword broke, making him have to use his machete knife, just like she had predicted in her dream. When Jose was initially incarcerated, he attempted to die by suicide. When he was getting ready, he prayed to God, he asked for help. It was when he had the noose around his neck that he says he heard a voice that stopped him in his track and made him keep living. He received quite some fan mail in prison. Teenage girls from all over the country wrote to him, saying how hot he was. 
This included letters from Idia and Raquel, who felt inspired by his crime and would later be known as the Witches of San Fernando. This is another case that's in the jar and which I will cover sometime in the future. Jose says that reading this made him not want to be their role model and he could not believe he may have had any influence in the crime those girls had committed. Nowadays, he claims to be completely rehabilitated. His wife, Tania, met him when she was 15 and he was 21. She stands by him fully, saying she has never feared him and that his past is just that and something that they have had to learn to live with. She states he is focused on his little girl to raise her right and he is respectful and affectionate. Jose calls himself a man of God rehabilitated by God. What follows are some of his quotes during the program. My name is Jose Rabadan Pardo and I murdered my family with a katana when I was 16. If I had known the consequences, I would not have done it. I can be a psychopath and be good. A psychopath who cares about others and tries to help his neighbors. A psychopath who finds support in religion. A psychopath who has a family. There was a time when reality visited me clearly. When I was aware of what had happened, right? In which I felt the absence of my family and that absence did not leave. I continually imagined their faces, imagined what had happened heard noises that resembled sobs and cries and screams of agony. I'm aware that many people will still consider me a monster. I'm doing this so those people can see that there has been a change in me. My intention is to contribute with a grain of sand to rebuilding. Part of reinsertion is just that, to prove that there is still hope. God saved me. Nowadays, Jose has no contact with any of his remaining family members and has no contact at all with anyone from his past. Whether or not he is completely rehabilitated, well, that remains to be seen. Thank you for listening. I hope you didn't know this case yet and were just as horrified listening to it as I was investigating it. All cases have been investigated using public content and all links are available in the episode's show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, and review wherever you have listened to it. It would help me so much to get this podcast out there. Remember, you can find the Crime Drop podcast on social media, so make sure you follow me on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find me as the Crime Drop podcast. This is where you'll find me picking a number out of a jar to choose a new case to cover. You can also send me an email at thecrimejarpodcast at gmail.com to send me your feedback, your comments, advice, or cases that you think should be added to the jar. I will be back next week with a whole new episode you have hopefully never heard before. Until then, stay safe.